0: So, I have a question for you, James. I'm going to be ordering this horrific hat (laughs) that I'm going to be wearing in in a month. Uh Uh-huh. Can I ship it to your house and have you drive it to RailsConf for me?
1: So, Chuck, you're shipping your porn to my house again? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously? Yeah, go ahead. It's fine.
0: All right. I'll, I'll need an address. You can just put it in the chat or email it or something. What is
2: this about hats?
0: This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to slash New Relic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 47 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm.
3: Hello, hello.
4: We also have David Brady. Hey, everybody. Dave Brady, Chief Metaphor Officer at Slide Rule Labs. We also
0: have James Edward Gray.
1: You guys don't realize what I go through to be in this show. I just sat through 20 minutes of emotionally scarring material.
0: That's <laughs> so true. Uh, we also have Josh Susser.
1: Hey, good morning from San Francisco.
0: And I'm Charles Maxwood from Teach Me to Code. We also have a guest rogue, and that is Dan Cub. Hey, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself for those who don't know who you are?
5: Uh, yeah, um, I'm Dan Cub. Um, I'm working mostly on the Data Mapper project. Um, and I uh, 2009, I, I won a Ruby Hero Award for that. And I do a lot of other open source stuff and Rails and random small projects. And uh, right now I'm working on mostly on Data Mapper 2. And yeah, so that's pretty so much I, it.
4: So I got to lead with one question, Dan. Data Mapper, okay. is that thing still around?
5: Uh, yes, oh. it is. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we're uh, obviously, um, uh, you know, competing with active records so that's that's pretty tough but uh, mm-hmm. um, we um, we still have a pretty active user base um, I mean it's not quite as as busy as back in the merb days but um, mm-hmm. uh, the data mapper project is much stabler now than it was in 2008 2007 when uh, when the bulk of the Ruby community tried it but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah and the data mapper too we, we have some great plans for that um, we've been blogging about it here and there and uh, awesome. I mean if you want to talk about it I will Mr. Are
4: you, you so so we actually have a different topic for the the show today but but Data Mapper so, so I'm a big fan of magic. I loves me some magic. I love you know get get as much active support monkey patching up up in my business as I can handle. Um, but Data Mapper, have you guys stayed true to the the philosophy of no magic? Everything should be explicit. If you want it, you should you should,
5: it should be out where you can see it. Yeah, I mean, we you know, there's a few things that we do differently. Um for one, we you know all the attributes are declared inside the model, so you can see what mm-hmm. um, what's happening. Um, you know, we do try to stay away from magic when we have multiple different ways of doing things. We we try to do the simplest thing that will work. Um, nice. And 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 you know, I mean, obviously there is things there, depending on on your level of experience, it might it might be considered magic. But um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we definitely try not to uh, you know not to do things that are overly clever. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's brilliant. I I I think it's,
4: I think it's good to have two competing models coming from opposite ends of that spectrum, so that people can try both and use which one that you know is going to be the best fit. Yep.
5: Yeah, I mean <clears throat> I mean one of the things with Datamapper is and and is that it's actually I mean, given the name you'd think it's an actual data mapper, but it's actually a a variant of an active record, or at least the version version one is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the what we're working on with data mapper two is like a um, a real mapper so that you actually mm-hmm. Uh, write, you know, normal Ruby objects and then you write a mapper that uh, that will map them to the persistence engine yeah. Um. so that you can test things in isolation rather than having everything coupled into a single uh, object. Holy right.
1: cow, I have not heard about this. And that was very exciting.
5: Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, there I mean, there have been some talks and some blog posts uh, going out about this.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's something that we haven't uh, promoted yet because you know we're still in development. So it's not like we're we're going everywhere to talk about it. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, if you actually look at the the trend, a lot of people are doing th- crazy things with their active records to make them more easily testable. I'm like, you know, that maybe that's a sign that that the model itself needs changing. So that's what we're what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting.
5: Sweet, looking forward to checking that out.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I just think the the whole idea of being able to go ahead and like. Well, for one, to test it in isolation. But the other thing is, is like if you have some obscure database that you want to use, you know, you can just write your own adapter persistence layer for it and, you know, just kind of go with it that way.
5: Yeah, I mean, we've we've allowed that to some degree with Data Mapper 1. Um, I mean, people don't know this, but there's about 40 adapters, back end adapters for Data Mapper 1 uh, for everything. I mean, there's the normal database ones you'd expect, but there's stuff for, um, I don't know, I don't know. I can't even think off the top of my head but oh Salesforce there is one for Salesforce and there's one for all sorts of uh, uh, web services so um, but yeah what we're gonna do with data mapper two is make that even easier and make that easier for people to to uh, map to their crazy backends legacy backends or even you know backends that were created with you know active records so
0: they have an adapter for uh, Salesforce did they did they yeah, write did, that? Uh, did they write that in pure pain?
5: <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I, I
3: did a talk for uh, Red Dirt Ruby last year uh, where I showed how to write a... In 20 minutes, I showed how to write a um, an adapter to Google spreadsheets. Um, I, I'll confess, I didn't actually write, the, write uh, the original code in 20 minutes, but it, mm-hmm. it was very quick. Um, it's. I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing about writing data mapper adapters, and one of the reasons I love it so much, is. I mean, if you if you want to write an adapter, there are four methods that you must implement: create, read, update, and delete.
4: Yeah. Once you actually have the vial of orphans tears, the four methods
3: are easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is actually a pretty good lead-in um, to mm-hmm. yeah. uh, to what, why... orphans <laughs> tears.
1: <laughs> Wait, um, this isn't what we're talking about this week. <laughs>
3: Um, to, to to so so this is it was kind of my idea um, to have Dan on the show and and this has got a good lead into why I wanted to have him. Um, I've been uh, I've been using Data Mapper. Anybody that I mean watches me tweet or something knows that I I really love Data Mapper. I've been using it for years, um, ever since my Devor days, and. Um, uh, so as a result of using that, uh, Dan has been one of my coding heroes for a long time because uh, one of the things I love about that project is that um, uh, the code, at least the the parts that, that Dan has been able to renovate, um, is just beautifully written, uh, very easy to follow. Uh, one of the, you know, I I was one of the things I I did. One of the first things I, major things I did with DataMapper was implement an, an adapter, or actually uh, help update an adapter for um, for Amazon, I think SimpleDB, uh, and you know it was just so easy to follow the code that was in the project, um, and and so he's been a kind of a, a hero of mine because he writes really really clean code, and every time I read his code, I feel bad about my messy code, and um, and then more recently I've had the privilege of of actually working with. With Dan, Dan uh, in CodeBenders. And so I get to, you know, a, like a better window into his working process. And I realized that a lot of his, uh, a lot of the, the cleanliness um, and beauty of his code comes from the fact that he practices a lot of careful coding disciplines. And and he talks a lot about just trying different coding disciplines uh, to discover um, you know what effect they have on his code. So Dan, can you expand on that a little bit and and talk about like why you try coding disciplines and and, and what that does for you?
5: Uh, yeah, um, sure. So can, can, can you start
2: with definition?
5: Definition, not your job, Josh.
2: No, it's my job to
5: ask for it. Uh, okay. Uh, so uh, is that for me? Um, yeah, sure. So sure. what code- I what's a coding di- discipline
0: object um, put in corner josh
5: <laughs> <laughs> no i mean like the way i see it i mean every time you you write code you're you're experimenting you don't know the solution up front um, it's very very rare that you would know exactly how to solve a problem so um, i might uh, you know take a a small project or even a branch in an existing project and, and try something out. Um, usually, I, I'll i make like a specific kind of constraint for myself. And usually, there's lots of them. But you know, I might say, uh, for example, uh, I did some tests with um, some early data mapper two code uh, back, you know, this is like two years ago, where I said, you know, I want to experiment with uh, mutation testing. So i like, well, how will that shape my code? So I will actually try my best to go through and write it using that constraint and many others, but uh, and see how it shapes my code. And if I like it, I might roll that into the main project, or I might just throw it out and tell a bunch of people, you know, this is, you know, maybe this didn't work for for this reason. Um, so, I mean, what I try to do is 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 go in with constraints. and, and one thing that Avdi and I were talking about before that I think might have sparked this talk is that um, I told him that the longer I code, the more constraints I have for myself. And and I don't think it makes me slower. I think it makes me faster because I can, um, you know, when I come into a new project, I can apply the, the constraints that I know that work. And, you know, I, I keep experimenting with, with new ones. Uh, you know, I might try metric foo or some of these other things and sh- see how they change my code. Uh, now I don't necessarily believe in taking tools and, following them precisely without thought but um, when they flag something I like to look at it and try to understand where the, the author was coming from so I can you know decide you know does does what they, is what they said uh, or, or what they designed for in their tool applicable to what I'm doing? Um, and it, I think it's it's good, especially when you're doing lots of coding by yourself, like I do on open source projects. Um, that I uh, that I have that uh, feedback because I might uh, with the CodeBender's team I can you know you can pass things through for code review, but I don't always get that in my open source stuff. So um, yeah, so that's pretty much it. You mentioned mutation testing um, for those who don't
3: know, can you explain uh, what that is and and what it does for like you know what is the result that using that has on your code?
5: So uh, mutation testing is something that I started doing a, a while back um, with a a tool called heckle. Um, and what it does is it will take a method and change something like it'll flip a Boolean, like from true to false, or, uh, it'll replace a string with some random string and then it will run the tests. And then it will see, you know, if the tests pass with that mutation in, then that means that there's some state that the program can be in that isn't tested. So, uh, so I started using heckle and, um, I, you know it was really great on small projects but uh, on larger projects it just it couldn't work because you would what happens is you, you mutate the one the one method which means just flipping one thing and then you run all the tests and if the tests take you know 10 15 seconds, which actually is you know pretty fast for like a rails project um, the, uh, it, it would take extremely long time to mutate every method in. And every variant inside each method, and then run, because you're running the entire test every time. Uh, so I kind of gave up on, on Heckle at that time. But then I, I, more recently, within the last, say, three years, I started doing something a little bit differently where I would mutate a method and I would just run the, the test specific to that method or specific to that class, and it cut down my, my times from, you know, down to a manageable time so I can actually Heckle my code. Um, So it it, uh, allowed me to have a lot more confidence in my tests, that my tests were actually testing things. Uh, At the same time too, uh, I wouldn't recommend it uh, for every project because it does, it has, it's a lot of overhead to make sure your code is heckable or mutation testing safe. Um, So I use it in parts of data mapper that are foundational, that have to be solid. Um, I don't know if I'd use it in every project, but um, it's been quite a quite interesting to see how it shapes how i write tests and how i um think about the different states uh, a method can be in so i mean that's just one example of of some constraint that i added so so another uh, constraint oh go ahead
0: no well, i'm just curious as to what <clears> other um what other disciplines or practices you've put in place that you've kept that you now find more or less essential
5: um, on a, on a team, uh, a code review, a, a good code review process is absolutely essential. Um, in 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 the case of of code vendors with Avdi and, and I and and Peter and Matt, um, we everything that we that we actually push to the master branch or our integration branch is uh, you know we go through and we it's almost like a game like when you write the code you're like okay i want to i know that avdi's going to see this so i want to make sure that it's clean and and i don't just get you know lazy or whatever and i, I pass it to him and then he you know it, it's a good way for us to kind of you know spread the knowledge that we might have in in specific things so
1: oh oh, we play that game differently when i think about who's going to see it that just means i include a a crude comment with it (laughs) auto trolling yeah
4: Or, or firefly quotes
1: that too i've done that yep (laughs)
4: <laughs> Somebody tweeted last night that they're starting to use Apple pun- Apple slogans as their commit messages so it's like everything is different again
2: It's awesome
0: <laughs> it, it, It's awesome in comments I, I don't know if it's useful in commit messages Yeah
2: <laughs> So Dan um, Commit messages you just swear a lot right
0: Yeah <laughs> I fixed the blankety blank because it was blankety blanking
2: right <laughs> Hey, guys, I have a a quick, really important question for you, and that's where in the avatar cycle code benders fall? Are they like after water benders or after air benders? (laughs) (laughs)
1: it took me way too long to get that joke
4: i didn't get it until he explained so i'm i didn't know what that was and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna reserve any permanent neurons for that data
2: okay i I withdraw the joke
4: (laughs) he said avatar and i was thinking blue men so
2: yeah
1: yeah that's where i went too i'm like wait what
0: I was thinking of <laughs> Twitter avatars. I'm like, what? Yeah, those blue men are from the other part of Canada.
1: Yeah. I was thinking
4: like the avatar cycle is first you put the green dot on it for Iraq <laughs> or Iran. And
3: then yeah. And then you block it black it out for SOPA. Yeah. All right. So um Dan, another uh, constraint that you mentioned to me once. It was doing a project with pure uh, command query separation. Can you um, explain what that's about?
5: Okay, yeah, so um, command query separation means that um, when you're writing a method, you decide, um, is this a command uh, or is this a, um, a query? And and the, the difference is a, a query can, return some value, but it can't change the state of the object. So you can call it as many times as you want, and it won't change anything. Uh, A command, you uh, never really return any, well, you can return whatever you want, but I usually return self from those. But uh, the the purpose of it is to um, uh, sort of change the state of the object. And uh, one of the things I did in one of the uh, in one of the core pieces of data map which we're right now code naming uh, Veritas is um, I used strict command query separation and I found it really nice for testing because I, I knew exactly you know for my query methods I knew that I could uh, I could uh, I wouldn't change any state and it was really uh, it was really well, I don't know. It's really useful to have the the separation rather than methods that change state and return values. It uh, it's, it's hard to reason how those things will work when you when you do them. And I think I mean it's sort of the trend, but there are lots of common methods that that do that in other libraries. Like for example. Um, uh active records valid method you know it it returns the state boolean true or false whether or not the object is valid but it also sets the errors uh, so I mean it's it, just in the the simple fact that you're asking the object for some state it actually changes the object or it changes something inside so uh, yeah
1: I, that's kind of interesting I, I I wasn't familiar with that idea so Talk to me about like how a method like uh, array delete, it, does that qualify? Because it changes the state, but it returns the object if it was able to delete it or nil. If not, is that a violation or not?
5: Well, I, I think that there are definitely exceptions like that. Um, there are some some cases where when you're removing something, you return the state. but But in general, I usually try to stick to... Uh, to command query separation because I like how the the code looks. I think if I find it much easier to test things when they're doing one or the other, not both. Uh, but definitely in, in in parts of Ruby standard lib and, and core there are places that, that don't follow it. And I'm not really sure how you would do that with without it. You know, the array delete, like would you set some some yeah, you'd yeah, you almost think, so. have to
1: have a last deleted thing, right? Yeah, yeah and that,
5: that would just be clumsy. So I think, you know, it's definitely, it's like one of those things if you, you know, I try to follow it, but there are definitely places where you uh, where you can't follow it or make your code clunky if you try to.
4: So do you have a way of enforcing command query or at least a notation that helps you know I'm in command mode or I'm in query mode? Uh,
5: usually in my specs, I'll have like a, a shared spec uh, that will... Um, that will that i'll include you know this is it must be a, it must behave like a command uh, method and then it does some tests to make sure that i didn't uh, mutate the object um and mm-hmm. same thing with with query so i mean i do try to do it but it, it's one of those things that i don't know if you can actually enforce with the tool specifically um, I, one other thing that I, that I do a lot is, um, is I use yard documentation. I think Avdi, and I probably drive Avdi crazy with this, but I <laughs> like to, when, when I write a method, I like to document what it does. I like to think about you know, what, what's it return, what's it accept. And at that point, I usually am thinking, you know, is it a command or a query? And usually, like I said, if it's a command, I usually return self, uh, cause then I can get nice, you know, chaining, uh, a nice fluid interface with the with the chaining. So uh, some people like to return nil or whatever, but uh, I mean, it's just, it's a personal process. I think the main thing when you're doing it is not to return something that means something. Mm-hmm.
3: You've definitely jogged my my thinking with the whole um, ubiquitous documentation thing because I think I think Rubyists in general um, err more towards the, the side of you know let the code speak for itself. Yeah. Um, and honestly, if anyone's code speaks for itself, I, I'd say Dan's does. But but uh, but you know. But he's documenting Dan, the hell
4: out of his code. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, if <laughs> you look at his
3: code, he he you know any any code that he touches, he uh, writes you know, full documentation for each method, you know, explaining what it does and 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 what the inputs and outputs are. Um, and I, I, at this point I still have kind of mixed feelings about that, but I have to admit, uh, you know, on, on many occasions I've gone in and it's been very helpful. Um, I, what, what got you started on that anyway?
5: Um, <clears throat> actually that, that probably, that habit probably got started when I was writing the data mapper stuff because people were, were asking like, how do I use this? How do I use this method? So I started using uh, yard documentation on everything and, um, I, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't. You know. Sometimes when I sit down at the at the end of the day to to do some open source work, I I would look at Data Mapper. I'm like, I don't know where to begin. So I actually wrote a, a tool called Yardstick that measures the coverage of of my code and it will tell me what methods are not have no documentation. So I um, I would use that just as a tool to identify you know what areas of the of the code have no API docs and I would go in and, and add them. And and I I too am kind of um, you know, questioning whether or not you want to document everything. Uh, but like I said, everything is—I I view like almost all coding as experimental. So what I know now, I might—you know—I might change my mind, and and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> but I mean, for for now, I think it's—I mean, if you, I mean, if you look at our our code, um, obviously we can't share with anyone. But I think it—it it feels like stopping to think about. What each method does, it results in something a little bit nicer than what was there before. So,
4: Dan, Dan, I'd like to ask you to go back and revisit a sentence you just said. Yeah,
1: me too. I think you're going to go after the same one. Go for it. I like
4: to view view all code as experimental. That's
1: exactly right. what I
4: was going to
5: say. That's I, great.
4: A, the flowers bloomed in my heart <laughs> when you said that.
5: <laughs> Could you yeah, perhaps I... elaborate? Yeah, I, I actually I think that um, as as coders we're we we're, we're all trying to to write really good code and and to some degree all of us have perfectionist tendencies and I think that um, that you have to you know sort of uh, reconcile that with the fact that you can never be a hundred percent right you know you. Given a long enough time, I think I said this in, in Campfire yesterday, given a long enough timeline, almost every decision you make is probably going to be wrong. Uh, so you have to be comfortable with being wrong. Um, so I view almost all code as experimentation. That doesn't mean that I go off and write crazy code, but I also I write it, you know, Given what I know right now, given, um, you know, what I know right now, this is the best I can do. And, you know, it it might not be right in six months, but I mean, that's why we write tests and that's why we write clean code and document it so that we can go in and and make the changes later. So a,
2: a friend of mine used to the way he would say that is there's no such thing as a good design. The, yeah that's you know, a great
1: that's a great idea yeah, it, just, it, it's a good design given whatever information you have now and then you know you run into something six months later and like ah that's why that was a really bad idea you know
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah everything every solution is a is a response is like an ad hoc response to some situation and situations change requirements change so yeah. right so
1: that's really so, good. I really like what Dan keeps saying here about uh, I'm okay with being wrong. You know, I yeah. think I, as programmers, we have a real problem with that. I mean, I mean, almost what we do, and I think it's I think it's that. It's that what we do kind of requires a little bit of ego. you know what I mean? I mean, we run up against problems that are very large and very hard to. You know, oh, I'm just going to design this complete system, you know, out of my head and make it all up as I go, you know, and things like that. So we tend to have an ego problem. And then, you know, when, you know, when the data comes around, you know, it's it's the good programmer who can admit, oh, yeah, I totally screwed that up, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going
4: I, to I, say this. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Jack.
0: I just wanted to point out that I don't have an ego problem. I actually am always right.
1: (laughs)
4: Right. I have a problem with Chuck's ego, but um, (laughs) I'm going to say this sentence. It's crowding you out two miles away. Sorry. Yeah. Completely in all sincerity, knowing that it's hypocritical, but I am very proud of my intellectual humility and like, like it's one of the things that I value about myself like so I'm, I'm sincere when I say yeah. I'm proud of it which is I recognize that's messed up but Angela <laughs> Harms came and spoke at Mountain West RubyConf she talked about you know problems with pair programming and she talks about do you ever zone out and I'm like I zone out all the time that's why I take 60 milligrams of Ritalin every day I mean it's it's well, 40. But anyway, uh, the, the thing is, is that um, I figured it's an ADD thing. And she says, no, if you're zoning out, it's because you're lost and you're afraid to admit that you're lost. And I took a huge ego hit um, when she said that because I realized it was absolutely true. It was because I get lost when, when I zone out. It's because I'm lost and I don't want to tell my partner that I'm lost and so the, the the this all started with, with Dan saying, I consider all code, I tend to consider all code as experimental and the best freaking programmer And we, we're interviewing Dan because he writes beautiful, wonderful code here. And if you're listening out there, everybody, be willing to be humble about your code and continuously improve. And that's how you become as awesome as Dan. That's what I have to say about that.
3: I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I mean, um, you know, Dan's, I don't, I'm probably not going to say this for himself. So I'll say it for him. He's absolutely one of the humblest programmers i know um and he inspires me i mean not just in his code but just in attitude inspires me every day to be you know to to kill my ego a little bit more and and be a little bit more open about you know uh, all the things that i'm probably wrong about
0: right so two things here first off we should do a dramatic reading of dan's code and then angels can sing <laughs>
2: <laughs> the, 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 the,
0: the second thing is is I'm, I'm a little curious about um where you come up with new things to try i mean there are always new things to try out there but it seems like sometimes i see things and i'm like yeah, that just doesn't make sense for me and and other times it's like well i'd really like to try that but you know i don't feel like i have time or whatever um, and so I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I find things that I feel like are important enough to give a shot to? And how do I get over the issues where I don't think it's a good idea and maybe it really is.
5: Yeah. And, uh, I actually don't, uh, know exactly where a lot of these ideas come from. I'll sometimes, uh, w- what will make me a little bit curious is when everyone's saying, don't do that. I want to, I, I kind of want to know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I will, you know, try to, try it anyway, just to see like, why is everyone saying this? Why is everyone universally against this idea? And, and tr- you know, I kind of want to know for myself, like, mm-hmm. you know, why, I mean, if you hear a lot of people will talk about, you know, uh, code coverage, for example, everyone will say 100% code coverage is, is a waste of time. And I'm curious, like, why do they actually say that? You know, have have they actually done it or, or are they just repeating what someone else has said? So I'll, I'll try it and I'll find out, you know, actually you know, there's some good things and there's some, definitely some bad things about it. And, and uh, you know, if, 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 I, if I feel like it makes a, an improvement in what I'm doing, I'll keep doing it. Otherwise, you know, you just uh, don't be afraid to, to throw it away and, and, and try something else. So, yeah. uh, you know, I might, I might try lots of different things too. And in, in, in each project that I come into, I try to take what I've done before and maybe introduce a few more constraints and just see you know how it how it shapes how it changes the code and the tests to see uh, you know if if it if it makes an improvement and and that's in that uh, the code review process I think is really important too because when i uh, am say reviewing avdi's code and i see something that i don't uh, you know that i think could be improved i actually have to put it in words rather than just thinking like oh i don't like that i have to explain to him like why i think that it could be done differently or better and and that it sort of helps me solidify you know my own style, um, and and I think that's that's something that's missing I, uh, from a lot of uh, dev shops that I've worked at before where, you know there people don't spend enough time reviewing each other's code and, and actually explaining you know possibly better ways to do things or and then too sometimes I come up with something I say hey here's a better way and after people we'll come back and say actually this is what was going through my head. And, and which will make me think, oh, actually, I guess you, you have an exception or your way is much better than mine. And, and you know, just and that helps shape my, my style and, and the constraints that I use from that point on. So
1: so that's a really good point. You talk about how a lot of us don't do code reviews. And that's I think that's very true. Can you describe maybe the process you guys use at code vendors?
5: Uh, yeah, so when we, um, we work uh, you know, uh, on st- uh, stories and each story is broken up into tasks and when we finish all of the tasks that we have for development, we usually have another one that's like for QA, and um, and gen- in general, you don't QA your own stuff. <laughs> uh, so I would pick someone else on the team that's uh, maybe not, you know, has a little bit of free time um, after my project finishes, and then I will send the code over to them, and uh, they I'll create a pull request, and they'll go into uh, GitHub and, and look at the diff, and actually add code comments, and or sorry, not code comments. He'll uh, they'll add uh, comments in line. Um, And usually what I do when I'm code reviewing is I'll do like a first pass looking for, you know, really, you know, like syntactical things. I'm just looking for cosmetic changes, you know, if I see someone doing something like if value blank, or, or or sorry, if not value blank or something, and I'll ask them, you know, why don't you use value present, that kind of thing. So I'll just do the, you know, simple pass over it, trying to get my way around the code. And I might do a couple more passes where I go deeper and deeper until I get to the point where I'm actually looking at the the, the design of maybe how the classes are are interacting, some of the, the naming between them. And, um, and, and I will admit, too, sometimes you can't get down to the same level as the person that wrote it because you can't, just by reading the code, you can't uh, always uh, understand exactly uh, to the degree that they did. But I think you can get you know fairly close. And uh, and then too, the the adding comments like how about this, how about that, gets the discussion going so that you can actually maybe get a little bit deeper into what what was going through their head when they wrote that code. So
1: that's really awesome. Yeah,
2: Dan, Dan I'm I'm curious what kind of um, what kind of coding standards. You, you, or what level of coding standards you work with, that, like style guides or you know, do this but don't do that?
5: Um, actually, I have uh, my own style guide on GitHub. I, I forked one uh, a few years ago. Um, if you actually go into github.com slash dcub, uh, and I think it's, uh, well, it's a Ruby style or something. I'll just hold a sec here. It, and um, basically what I did is I, I took someone else's... Uh, uh, coding style guide, and I changed it and added my own. And every few months I'd like to go back to it and kind of add what I've what I've learned. Um, yeah, it's a dcob slash style guide. and um, and I, it helps put it in in words. Uh, now, it looks like it's been uh, six months since I've changed it. So I guess I haven't done anything recently, but um, yeah, it, it, it just helps me get you know kind of this is basically the first level. The the the, um, the first pass that I do through a code review, this is the kind of stuff I would look for. Um, I don't know if I necessarily could go to to a much deeper level in this, but uh, but for, to be honest, a lot of code reviews. If 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 you just said to someone before you pass it to me for a code review, can you please just check it against this? Because this is the stuff I'll be flagging for sure. Uh, and you know, it starts a discussion too, where people will say, "Oh, I actually disagree with this point," and then you know, you can talk about why and. And, and figure out if maybe there's a better way or not. So,
2: okay. So 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 yeah. there's style guide at the level of like you know, curly braces versus do end. But but yeah. then there's also things like uh, using enumerable inject, which uh, you know some teams have have things yeah. they say about about using inject versus other forms of enumeration.
1: Yeah, but I mean, those teams are wrong. Just <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, as, as long as the needle's clean.
1: <laughs> yeah. Ouch. Chuck yeah, is um,
4: using inject to do hash. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank okay. you. I'm here
2: all week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, I'm, I'm, yeah, there's a
4: certain key to that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, okay, but but the, I, my my point is that there's different levels of abstraction where you can worry about style guides or standards and and some of them are even higher level, like modules versus uh, class inheritance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm, I'm curious if you have, if you have uh, things that are codified around the higher level abstractions uh, for team style guides.
5: Uh, actually, I don't have anything specific about that. Um, usually when I come into a, a team, I'm looking at, you know, very simple, you know, very cosmetic things. And then we'll get down and start talking after we get past all that. And, and we sort of have an agreement on what we're how we're going to approach things. Then we might get into that that level, um, but you know usually it's it's a I mean using inject for example. Um, I actually have a rule about inject. I don't use it unless I'm mutating unless I'm returning a different object every single time through the block. I'll usually use each with object because uh, in the case where it's the <laughs> same object through through the loop. So, um, I mean, it, and for me, that's just more precise because I'm actually not changing the, um, the, the object every single time. So, So
1: I, you know. I actually want to dwell on this for a minute because it's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> um, the reason everybody hates inject is because we all do, we, uh, in Ruby, it used to be that people used it with a hash all the time. And they pass a hash into it, and then they'd set some key in there, and then do semicolon and put the hash after it because you have to return the return value, right? That's the only mm-hmm. thing
4: you can do with ha- with inject, isn't it?
1: <laughs> oh. Yeah, so see, David Brady writes code like this. Um, yes. and, uh, <laughs> in, uh, it's Ruby, true.
0: David <laughs> Brady is doing it
4: wrong.
1: It's <laughs> doing it wrong. That's right.
4: <laughs> Should be our it's, new slogan. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: right. In Ruby 1.9, there's a, a new iterator called each with object, which is actually meant to serve that purpose. And it's when you want to iterate with some object along with the iteration. So, like the hash, you patch the hash in. And every time, that object carries forward, no matter what, uh, no matter what happens in the block. So you can use each with object to do stuff like that. Inject wasn't meant for stuff like that. Inject is meant where you are, uh, over time, building up some result, right? Um, and you're doing that by, you know, you know uh, the, the great example is if you have an array of numbers and you're summing them, right? Which yeah. Rails has a sum method, but, um, but uh, they you know, you're adding them to each other. That is the correct usage for inject. So.
0: Right. So it's is, value accumulation, like the top of my desk.
4: I need to clean it off. Is 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 there really a? a and maybe this is just too much of a side tangent. Is there a real difference between inject and reduce?
1: No, they're aliases. Okay. They're the okay. exact same method. Okay.
4: No easy answer <laughs> i'm gonna have to go write uh, dan
0: cub lint off of his style guide now
4: i do dan uh, I, I may be jumping way ahead to the end of the call but seriously will you go out with me i mean will you pair programming with me
2: <laughs> uh, sure yeah I, i'll pair program with you Woohoo! <laughs> in before the rest of you guys suckers <laughs> and, and dan when he zones out you know what that means yep <laughs>
1: It <laughs> doesn't give uh, a Dan- shit. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: About you or your code.
3: <laughs> Dan, you said something recently in, in a campfire chat that stuck with me. Um we were discussing uh, uh or or Peter and I were discussing um, tickets. Uh, you know, user stories that just aren't interesting. You know, the the ones that that you want to leave to till the end because they're just boring, dumb stories. As f- from a coding point of view, and you basically said no story. No story is uninteresting. Um, and, and I, I love this guy. <laughs> um and and um and, and for a specific reason and i, I think le- could you just like uh, if you remember that conversation could you just para- uh you know restate yourself rather than me trying to restate what you said
5: yeah i, I think I, I said something like you know there's always something that you can find interesting in a story and sometimes you have to make it interesting by introducing some constraint or using it like as a learning experience uh, i think I, I don't remember the specific case but i i believe it's something to do with um you know the story was was wasn't particularly interesting, and I was like, well, maybe this is an opportunity to try some something new. Like, um, I mean, we we do this uh, pretty religiously, um, but you know, say if you weren't doing you know strict uh, you know red green refactor uh, steps, to actually say I'm going to actually do this in this in this story and uh, and and test it. Use it as a, as a time to experiment with something that might be unfamiliar to you. That's going to vary for every person. Every person is going to have uh, different things that they, uh, that they want to try. But I think that, I mean, in general you can make almost every story interesting unless it's just data entry or something. But then again, with data entry, you could, you, you could maybe automate some of it, build yourself a, a little Sinatra app that allows you to enter the stuff. And it does, you know, so, I mean, I, I think that in general you can find everything interesting. Was this a specific time where you were bugging me about being like Mary Poppins? <laughs> that is, that is the, uh, um the time when I decided
3: I was going to start calling you Mary Poppins because it just it reminded me of Mary Poppins saying you know in every task um you know every task can become a game uh, you just have to find a way to add a bit of fun to it <laughs> <laughs> I I mentioned to
4: Uncle Bob a year ago or more that that programmers just want to work on cool stuff and and his reply was it's all cool stuff And I've done data entry, you know, rating an Oracle database to import it into an Informix database. And yeah, it's once you get down to like the, you know, there's like some weird mapping algorithm stuff going on down here. I mean, this is boring stuff that lets government comptrollers count the number of beans being dispensed by bean dispensers somewhere. Who gives a crap? But man, there's this really cool data structure that you have to move over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently I had no point.
0: (laughs) No, the government came and took all my beans away. Yeah.
4: (laughs) Just 48%. I'm
1: I'm over here reading the style guide that uh, Dan directed us to. That's a pretty neat exercise. I actually don't agree with uh, some of the things in it, but everybody should read through it because uh, you can get some neat ideas like uh, using a blank line before the return value just to, like, set the return value apart. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a neat idea.
4: I'm actually going to take Dan completely at face values, like, spiritually as well. I'm going to read through this, and the ones that I don't agree with, I'm going to try them. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the diff- difference between me and James is that James has probably already tried them, and that's why he disagrees, whereas I'm just an idiot, so...
1: I'm I
5: like the try. idea of trying the ones you don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah. You want but, to kind of find out why, why they yeah. think.
0: Yeah. My problem and is, actually- is I need, I need to try some of the ones I do agree with.
1: Ooh.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Forget if I'd only know then what I know now, I I'd just, I'd be happy if I could just do now what I know now. Right.
0: Some days I tell
4: you some days
0: and some projects, it's just, you just don't want to. And, and I think that's part of what we're discussing here too, is that. I mean, we, we all know generally the right kinds of things to be doing, and it's just, it's hard sometimes to really have that kind of discipline and sit down and say, look, I'm going to write this code the right way, the best I can, you know, from start to finish, you know? And I mean, most of the time, you know, I'm I'm in a mode where I'm willing to do that, but every once in a while, I really have to fight to get it done.
1: So that's a good question, Dan. Do you find yourself cowboy coding sometimes? Do you... Do you say, "Oh, today I'm going without the rules"?
5: Oh yeah, I mean, I don't think that you can maintain 100% discipline all the time. You have to give yourself a break. Um, and you know, I might have uh, open source projects where uh, you know I, it's just me experimenting off in a corner. Or I have a gist, and and in those cases, I might cowboy code. Uh, I might just spike something out with no tests and just see how it see how it works. So I think that I think that there's room for everything. I, I don't think that you should be. Uh, you know, slavishly using these 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 guys and never divert, diverging from them is is also not good. You know, you have to st- stop and think about what you're doing and and and, and sort of match what you're going to do to how you're feeling. Because I don't think that you can maintain 100% discipline all the time. It's you burn out really fast that way. I think.
2: Yeah. Dan. Dan, are there um, are there uh, sort of uh, false disciplines that you've encountered? over time and oh yeah like, tell like, us what didn't work
5: oh what what didn't work um okay I'll, I'll actually because we were talking about mutation testing earlier um i'll tell you some of the things that i don't like about that so um with mutation testing you you if you have a a code base that actually passes all mutation testing it means that every line of code can be changed, and it will cause a spec failure. And not just every line; every statement inside each line. So if you have like a, you know, a, a condition that can be uh, get over to multiple uh, states, it will mutate to each one. And you, know, it, it's and what you end up with if you actually go through this exercise is you end up with code that just by by default will pass like Arcov. It'll be 100% uh, covered in Arcov. And um, to get to that point, I had to do some crazy stuff like specking my my hash methods. So uh, you know, for for if you don't if you're not familiar, a hash method is uh, is something that it, that hash the the object actually uses internally to um, keep track of where an object is inside the hash table, and um, and it it two objects that have the same hash value are are stored in the same place, and then when uh, when you do a lookup, it will find that place and then see if it's actually stored there. Uh, at least I think I'm I'm probably simplifying. James might be able to give more insight into exactly what it's doing. But um, So I had to spec these hash methods. And I mean, these hash methods, all they do is call hash on instance variables inside the object and then uh, XOR them together. And uh, it, it, it seemed like such a waste of time when I was doing it. Although I will mention that I did actually find a bug in... Uh, I think it was Rubinius or, or JRuby J Ruby because of this. So I mean, it wasn't all a waste of time. Hmm. but uh, I definitely found you know cases where methods that were otherwise obvious when you look at them, what they were doing, I had to spec them so that they would pass through heckle. So uh, or I think that if I was to do that exercise again, I might make an exception for certain methods like that uh, and and say, you know, this doesn't have to be uh, mutated because I'm pretty sure by looking at the one line of xored uh, instance variables that I can, that it's going to pass. So. So,
2: so you now fall down firmly in the camp that 100% test coverage is not worth it?
5: Uh, Yeah, I I think that you have to use your brain and and decide what level is is necessary for your code. Uh, I do have some foundational libraries in Data Mapper that I like to be pretty high, uh, or at least Data Mapper 2, that I like to be pretty high. I like them to pass through mutation testing, but uh, I don't necessarily believe that um, code coverage is – 100% code coverage is a good goal. Although, I will say you have to try for yourself and make your own decision. (laughs)
1: So one of the interesting points in this uh, style guide links to uh, an Erlang thing, where it talks about do not program defensively. Uh, that was mm. really interesting. It talks about how you you basically should check your inputs, you know, when they come in, but then the rest of your code should assume you got good input, which is a great idea, I think. I, yeah. I, 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 okay. Go ahead.
5: Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if you've ever ever seen code that, that doesn't, uh, you know, it, it doesn't do that, it, it will have checks in every single method for every argument, and it's. Uh, I believe that when data enters the system, that's the place that you that you have to verify and validate it, and then once it's inside the system, I think that you uh, have to trust it. Otherwise, you're going to end up with assertions in every single method, and I don't necessarily know that that's a good, or at least from in my experiments, well, that- it hasn't resulted in good code. And that can even introduce new bugs.
3: I mean, if you if you check the same thing over and over and over again, eventually you're gonna uh, you're gonna get it wrong, or you're gonna um, you're gonna overcheck somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, that's also copy and paste.
2: I've seen I've seen, languages that, I've seen languages that uh, bake this stuff in where they, they describe the invariants at the beginning of the function or or the method. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, didn't Eiffel do something like that? Yes but yeah, so uh, yeah, so so I yeah, I agree, you should you know put that stuff up front, make sure it's all cool, and then you can play around with abandon within the rest of the code,
0: so,
4: th- so do you just stack up guard clauses or what
2: that's one way to do it well the the the
4: key, th- I've been bitten by this by having, you know, a guardian at the border of like the class and something gets through and it just runs a because nobody else inside the class is, is checking their inputs or just assuming. And and I I thought that was a defect and so we should go through and program defensively and put guards on everything. But that's a violation of the dry principle. The guardian yes. was supposed to guard that and go ahead and write unit tests that, you know, that yeah, if you're 3 levels into this class and you have bad input somehow, the correct behavior is to just you know blow your code's brains out, and and that is the appropriate response at this
2: point. <laughs> well, and okay. that's another. Well, that's okay. so, so the Alan Kay, you know, object-oriented programming. He he always equated it to uh, objects were like cells, and they were things that had mm-hmm. independent lifetimes and and had their own internal workings. And one of the things that he he liked to say about cells is that they spend a huge percentage of their energy, making sure that the outside stays out and the inside stays in. Nice. And, you know, the, you know, the cell membrane, or the cell wall even, is, you know, it, it's a huge amount of the cell's metabolic energy, you know, mm-hmm. keeping the right stuff out and the right stuff in. And, yeah. and that that's the way he thought about objects as well, and, and the, the appropriate place to be checking those invariants and making sure things are correct is at the point where data is flowing into the object. Yeah.
1: Right, and that's that's important for a lot of reasons, because, you know, if, if you are guarding everywhere, then you're just, all you're doing is you're adding to every single method, you know, and the whole point is to keep those methods small, tight, understandable, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. It also applies to many cases, like, for example, um, you know, if you're going to deal with encodings, if you're going to handle multiple encodings, transcode to UTF-8 on the way in, work with UTF-8 everywhere, and then, uh, and then, you know, transcode back to whatever you need on the way out, you know.
4: Yeah. So. Boundaries exist for a reason. If you, put, if you put guards everywhere, you've just given your code cystic fibrosis.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and this is also <laughs> another t- argument for, like, at the library level, this is another argument for um, having few entry points into the library. Um, like, you know, a warning flag yeah. for me is, is code where I see, you know, where the actual, like, the right way to use a library is to do a lot of calls of, you know, foo colon colon bar colon colon baz dot new, uh, you know, where you're, where you're instantiating some object that's way down in, you know, in the bowels of the library. Um, and, uh, you know, and that kind of, it, you know, when you have tons of entry points in, into a library, then, it, you know, you're really not able to have areas where you say, okay, at this point. Um, at this point I've checked the inputs.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to cut us off. We're going to get to the picks unless, Hello. unless somebody <laughs> has one last thing they have to get in.
2: I, I, I have a, I have a philosophical question for Dan. Okay. And, and okay. that's that. um, the, doing uh, hardcore XP development of, of discipline is a big part of it. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the disciplines you've been talking about here and, and adhering to, to some sort of discipline, but the flip side of that is creativity. And the, you know, I've written about discipline versus creativity. A lot of people have, I'm curious to hear how you're thinking on how how you know, constraints are freeing or constraints are constraining. I mean, the, you know, what, what, do you, what do you see the effect is on your code uh, and, and your level of creativity for problem solving if you are following these very um, strict disciplines?
5: Uh, I actually I think that uh, constraints actually liberate you a little bit. Um, I, I do believe that you have to go back and and always question the constraints that you have. but um, sometimes you know if you if you're writing some code and there's multiple ways of doing it, your constraints will sort of lead you down a path. And you know you always have to question whether that's still the right, you know the right thing that you're not just following something that you decided ten years ago because someone told you so. Um, so, uh, i i find them liberating i find that that uh, i can focus on things that are a little bit higher level than you know do i use curly braces or do i use do end here you know that kind of stuff so i'm not thinking at that i'm not focusing on that low level stuff i'm I'm able to focus on something higher and and sort of you know how everything fits together you know are my classes right am i using the right naming here and you know sort of uh, I, I I never feel that that the constraints that I use um, uh, limit my creativity. Although I think that if some do, I think it's time to question sort of is that a good idea or not. So I would use that as a test: is my creativity getting stifled here because of something that I learned ten years ago that might not apply anymore? So,
2: oh, that's a that's a great way to think about that. Yep, yeah, cool, interesting.
1: I, I think it's kind of also. I mean, if you adopt some constraint like i am not going to write a method over four lines period right and then you (laughs) write that method that totally makes sense as five lines you know that's the way you naturally write it then you have to go back and figure out, okay, how am I going to shrink this down to four lines? And sure, you'll do bad things. I mean, if, it, if the method really should be five, it should be five, you know, but you'll do bad things in order to make that happen. But at the same time, it will make you creative, you know, if, uh, mm-hmm. how am I going to shrink this by one line? You know, maybe not a good kind of creativity, but you can often learn things from that, you know?
0: Yep. Right. All right. Well, let's get to the picks. Um, James, why don't you go ahead and share with us first?
1: Okay, so I have uh, an on topic pick and an off topic pick this time. So, uh, or not necessarily on topic, more like uh, work related and not work related. Um, I've, I've kind of been out of blogs lately. I, I don't know. I haven't been able to find a blog I really enjoyed reading uh, lately until recently. And that's um, uh, Adam Keyes's blog, uh, in my opinion, has been really good lately. Just incredibly practical uh, posts, in my opinion. Like he did one uh, just the other day about uh, database shape problems, and it's just a really practical look at uh, you know does the database fit the problem? Excuse me, the problem fit the database, and and stuff like that. He has one where he just has a video of. how he uses splits and them and it's kind of sloppy you know and that his process and stuff but it's very real because of that and i i kind of like that so anyways i i just I, if you're looking for a blog that that i'm finding regularly interesting uh the, the real adam is what the blog is called and it's uh quite good okay so then off topic uh, or not work related. Uh, I've been watching the TV show Breaking Bad. and if you haven't watched Breaking Bad, you got to try it out. it's is uh, definitely what a train wreck in progress looks like. Uh, almost every single episode is another amazing crisis that you you wonder how you know he's going to get out of. A really cool episode about a science teacher or a show about a science teacher who finds out he has terminal cancer and what he decides to do with his life at that point. So uh, you should check it out. It's very enjoyable. Those are my picks.
4: All right. Uh, David, what are your picks? Uh, I just have one today, but it's absolutely freaking incredible. Um, I'm a little embarrassed about this, but I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and have this be my pick. My pick today... Is DavidBradyPickMachine.com. This is <laughs> uh, this is a this is a fan uh, a fan submission from Aaron Cruz. Uh, he's Mr. Aaron Cruz on Twitter. Uh, he's got a big thing at the bottom that says not affiliated with David Brady or the Ruby Rogues, but it does have a gigantic picture of my head. On it, um, (laughs) that
2: spins around. Well, 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 David, any picture of your head would have to be gigantic.
4: This is true. This is true. Even with a wide-angle lens. Um, But this is a really, really cool. This is one of uh, an example of somebody scratching their own itch and then saying, "Hey, can you use this?" Um, So what this is, Aaron was frustrated that he kept wondering, we would pick five things or 15 things at the end of every episode. Well, we've done 42, 43 episodes now. 46. 46 episodes. And so there's like 200 different picks out there. So he wrote this thing that takes each of our picks at the end of each show and goes out and he scrapes the page that we linked to. And he takes all of the keywords on that page and builds, and basically, there's a little Postgres full-text engine search, so you can go to this thing and you can basically say, "I want to search for blog," and it brings up Abdi's, uh you know, org to blog. It, it brings up Stevie's drunken blog rants. Um, you know, it's it, it, all the anybody that linked, pick, made a pick that had the page that it linked to had the word blog in it. Shows up in this search, and so you can come here very quickly and find who who mentioned what and uh, and what they searched for. And uh, I, like I said, I think it's a little hilarious and a little funny that he decided to name it after me. Um, I think maybe it needs a better name I, because I I, I don't want to be the next Hamster Dance dance of the internet. Um, <laughs> actually, maybe I kind of do. Yes, that, you do. <laughs> yes. Okay, it's fair. I do. I do want to be the next. Search dance your feelings. Of the yeah that's me all right so anyway davidradypickmachine.com um it might need a better name down the line seeing as it's for all of the ruby rogues but hey it's got a gigantic spinning head of me so there and you go.
1: with with fans like that who needs enemies yes yes <laughs>
4: thank you aaron Cruz. that's freaking awesome all right uh avdi what are your picks
3: well, uh, James actually reminded me that I read a, a really good uh, blog post yesterday. Uh, Michael Feathers wrote "Tell Above, Ask Below: Hybridizing OO and Functional Design," and um, and, it, it's, it's and it's it's well written and it's thought provoking and it uh, it pretty much is uh, in alignment with the way I think of of how uh, OO and and functional programming uh, can work together. Talking about how. OO is, can be kind of a higher level design discipline and functional works really well uh, at, the, at the you know inside of methods. Um, I, so I, cool I like work. that
2: too. I like that too. We should have him on the show and talk about it.
3: Oh, absolutely. Love to, to get him on the show. Um, Michael, wait. if you're listening, make room in your calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Um, another pick I have is a community and, um, this is tooting my, my own horn a, a tiny bit because, because I guess I, I kicked off the community, but it was almost accidental and I, I can't really take, uh, any responsibility for the quality of the, of the discussions that have gone on. Um, I, when I was writing, uh, objects on rails, I wanted some, some feedback and, um, and you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but one of the smartest things I did writing that was I created a uh, open to the public mailing list for anyone that that wanted to, to come in and discuss the drafts of the book that I was putting out. And uh, it's got well over four hundred members now. and and there have been just some great discussions of of object oriented programming in Rails there. And, uh, you know, it's not just like stuff about the book, but it's just general questions like, you know, uh, what are the best ways to, to separate my, my storage from my business logic and stuff like that. So, uh, I've really been enjoying some of the discussions there.
4: Avdi, I know you're too humble
3: to, uh, shill yourself, uh, outrageously on the show, but where can I go to buy your book? ObjectsOnRails.com. Cool. Also, you, you can also go there to read it, read it for free.
4: Yep. Sweet.
2: It's the internet. Why should I pay for anything?
0: <laughs> <laughs> because it's awesome. All right, um, Josh, what are your picks?
2: Okay, um, I actually have an amazingly on-topic pick, um, although a little redundant now. Uh, this is the GitHub Ruby-style coding guide, or Ruby-coding style guide. Uh, yeah, So it, it looks like it was, um, it has a common ancestor to Dan's style guide, uh, which is why it's a little redundant, but it's, uh, it's super well-presented, it's amazingly well-formatted, and um, I agree with almost everything in it. And and after David Brady's comment, I, I'm going to try some of the things I don't agree with, but they're very few. Uh, uh, and this is very much the way that I write my Ruby code. So I would I would recommend everybody take a look at this and and try and either think real hard about why you wouldn't want to do things this way or just do it. And so that's that's at, uh, That's on GitHub.com, of course. Uh, style guide Ruby. So. Yeah, and uh, and they use that for their internal coding, but uh, of course they make it available for everyone else. Okay, and then I ha- okay, so that's that's my uh, my useful pick, uh, and my other my other uh, pick is uh, um, when I was in college, I read a lot of uh, science fiction by an author named Larry Niven, and and he hasn't been writing very much lately, but he wrote a ton of stuff in the '70s and the '80s that really appealed to science nerds and to programmers and, and I, I don't know if any, who who on the show is like a big fan of of Larry Niven but mm-hmm. um, but yeah uh-huh. it's just he, he's he's so good at making hard science fiction fun and he makes it, it it's like the old Arthur C Clarke or Isaac Asimov stories that were basically puzzles to figure out as the you know so the, so the Larry Niven Known Space stories uh, are, are just great, and that's where that's the universe where where Ringworld is set, and th- there's just a lot of really awesome stuff going on in there. So I I would recommend. If you're looking for some good classic science fiction to read, Larry Niven. Do the yeah,
4: do definitely. the man do the man Kazin wars take place in known space? Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and and in fact, some of that stuff going on with the with known space. One of my other picks a couple months ago was the um, Star Trek animated series and one of the larry one of larry niven's um, short stories got turned into one of those episodes and that oh, was cool part, yeah yeah so and anyway it's 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 awesome and a lot of what he's done has has um, percolated out through the rest of science fiction so he's he's de- he definitely set some tropes that have been repeated elsewhere
3: nice i particularly okay. like his collaborations with jerry pornell Yes. Yeah, th- those aren't in the known space, but no. but but a-
2: absolutely. I, I you know I thought that uh, Lucifer's Hammer was one of the most amazing things that I read in the eighties. Yes, yeah, very good. Yes. Yeah. So although Footfall was much weaker in comparison, <laughs> so, <laughs> the uh, but but uh, are you talking about the um, the uh, the Modi, the Moten God's Eye? Yeah. Yeah, Moten God's Eye. No. It's not it's not known space. It actually takes takes place in. Um, in Purnell's universe. But yeah, those are those are really good. That's
3: a really good story too. They're a good writing team. Yeah, yeah. That.
2: And, and then just as a, as a little final note, I saw John Carter over the weekend.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Awesome movie.
3: Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I've been hearing the, really good things about it.
2: The, 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 re, the reviews have been a bit mixed, but it's just like... Like like amazing everything for for two hours. So
3: I, I, and, I, and just I, to geek out for a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, for those who who don't know, John Carter is based on on a uh, a series of science fiction stories that basically uh you know along with a few others created science fiction as we know it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, the guy who wrote Tarzan a hundred years ago. Uh,
3: yeah. And and the and it's yeah the whole um, Princess of Mars series of yeah, books.
2: Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's really incredible how many you know talk about. Oh. You know, I mentioned Larry Niven set some tropes, John Carter, you know, the John Carter stories, all the set so many tropes that you see everywhere now. So,
0: yeah, wasn't that put together by Disney?
2: Amazingly enough. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway,
2: <laughs> but did a great job. So.
0: I'll have to go see it. All right. Um, I'll go ahead and go next. Um, so my first pick is things. Yeah, I'm picking things. Um, things is a to do application. You can get it in the, the app store, the Mac app store. You can also get it for the iPad, and then it'll sync over wireless um, with your computer. And uh, it's really helped me get organized. Whenever I have something new that I have to get done, I just throw it up into things, and then um, and then I'm able to remember that I need to get it done. And uh, I, um, the more I use it, the more I love it. So, um, the the other thing is, is it has something that no other to do task list. That I've ever tried to use has ever had, and that is, is that I can actually set it up, you know, with tasks that need to recur, so things that I need to do every day or every week. Um, I can say, look, you know, I, I want this to, you know, be in my today's tasks um, each day, and uh, make sure that I do it. So, you know, it's it's really nice. So I can schedule out my tasks and make it work. Um, the other pick that I have, and this comes from a conversation that uh, David was privy to, and I think I posted something on Twitter about it, um, but I was pretty frustrated because I had a client that I couldn't get to pay me. And, ah, you're going
4: to use this pick, Yes.
0: Yes. And uh, so anyway, um, and and at risk of losing our clean rating, I'm actually going to tell you what it's called. Uh, there's this video on Vimeo. It's called Fuck You, Pay Me. And uh, it, it really, you know, he, he goes over a lot of things that uh, you really need to know just to make sure that you can collect. And, um, it turns out that I did just about everything right. Um, luckily enough, I, I didn't really know that I had, but my, my contract's pretty solid. So, um, anyway, it, he really just goes into, look, you need to do these things, kinds of things and you need to do these kinds of things and don't do these kinds of things. I think my favorite part, um, or the part that kind of made me laugh was, uh, he, he goes up and he says, you know, you go to Quora and you, you know, that's like the font of all knowledge. And. You know, you want to get a a super good answer. So that's where you put it. And so, uh, you know, he shows a question where somebody says, I can't get this guy to pay me. And the first question, the first answer is, well, um, I think it was like appeal to their emotions or write an emotionally charged letter.
4: You could write a heart wrenching letter. That's
0: what it was. And I'm just sitting there going, that doesn't sound right to me. And then he goes, don't do this. (laughs) I was like. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, he, he really just talks you through how to how to go through um, and, and make sure that you're getting paid. And he also talks about a lot of situations that uh, that freelancers or you know service providers will run into and uh, just make some stellar recommendations. Here's how we handle this. And most of the time, it's, you know, we quit and we collect our kill, kill fee. Yep. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it all makes sense. And so I'm actually going to be looking into adding a kill fee to my contract. But uh, anyway, just just really, really interesting and uh, really enlightening, really made me understand, Okay, this is how you have to look at this stuff, because if you don't, you're you know, you're you're setting yourself up. Yeah. So anyway, um, Dan, what are your picks?
5: Um, I only have uh, one today. Uh, so, since we were talking about mutation testing earlier, um, the the one that uh, most people know about, uh, or if you when it came out uh, about three years ago, is uh, or actually I think it's more than like five years ago now. It's called Heckle, and um, it uh, Heckle is an awesome tool. But the, the only thing is that it, it only works with uh, Ruby one eight. So if you're doing 1.9 or or other, uh, you know you want to write for Ruby two and in the future. There's nothing that works with it. Um, So there's a new mutation tester called Mutant. Uh, It's by uh, Joseph Bach and uh, Justin Ko. And it's at github.com slash txusmutant. And it uses Rubinius uh, to... Uh, Parse the uh, parse the code into an AST, and then it mutates the AST, recompiles it to Ruby, and then executes the specs. Uh, It's still in early development, but uh, it looks like it uh, will probably surpass Heckle in the in terms of how many um, mutations that it has, and uh, and it it also looks like it's a lot more extensible. So um, oh, and it also mutates 1.9 syntax code. So uh, so that's definitely something to look at if you're into if you want to get into mutation testing so
0: okay. alright well uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up next week we're talking to Jose about uh, crafting rails applications right yep. yes I just yep. couldn't remember what today was Okay, Jose Valim, and um, yeah so I'm really excited about that I, I can't put the book down I mean it's just so good so I'm really excited to, to dig into this with him um, we're, I'm sorry my brain just turned off Um, we're also in iTunes, so if you want to get the podcast there, you can just look us up, Ruby Rogues. Um, leave us a review while you're in there and let us know what you think. Um, and if you need to get it on another device, there is an RSS link on the main website, so you can pick that up. And, uh, finally, I just want to, uh, remind you to go check out our sponsor, New Relic. Um, you can just click on the link on the website, um, or, you know, we have the little thing that plays at the beginning of the episode that tells you how to get there. So, anyway... Um, That's it. Um, Thanks again for coming, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we will catch you all next week.